When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. The smoke from California has arrived. It swirls into the plume from our own wildfires and pushes heavily against the windows of my house in Boulder. The glass seems to vibrate with heat, with the gray density of the air. I press my mask against my face, tighten the straps, and pull the curtain in front of the window. I'm hiding. It's dark in this house and stifling hot and lonely. The county issued a hazardous air quality alert days ago, and I haven't cracked a window since. Haven't moved fast enough to get my heart rate up either, for fear of breathing more of this gunk into my lungs than I need to. Inside, the air stagnates and stings the back of my nostrils. Up until this point in the pandemic, as rugged as parts of it have been, I've always had my favorite trails, my mountain bike, the release of a long trail run. Now it feels like there's nowhere to go. No way to forget, even for an hour, that the whole world is unsafe, down to the literal air I'm breathing. And it's here that I begin to feel a low hum of panic. The virus, the warming climate, the way the whole world seems to have inexplicably teetered off its track around the sun this year and sent us all askew. It's like a messed up game of hide and seek a distorted, nightmarish version of my favorite childhood game. Like someone flicked off the lights and told us to hide, and we laughed and slid into our corners, and waited, and waited, and are waiting still for someone to come find us. Surely someone should be coming soon, moving through the darkness to remind me this is all a game, and then we'll gather again and envy the person who hid longest and start the whole thing over but no footsteps approach. Normally at this time of year, my extended family would be together on the Carpenter Ranch in Northern Colorado. Over a hundred years ago, my great-grandfather, Ferry Carpenter, homesteaded in the Hayden Valley and then opened a cattle ranch along the Yampa River. Now, five generations deep, 
all my aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and great uncles and in-laws removed migrate back to the home ranch in August for our reunion. We have every summer of my life. To return here each year is to come home. To remember we are all one cell in a living organism that was born long before we were and will die long after we are gone. But tonight, we're having our family reunion on Zoom. And the bats are flying around. My favorite place on the ranch? Yeah. In the barn, the stairs leading up to the hay loft above. I know, just earlier late in the day with the way the sun kind of ripples off that water. It's really a beautiful spot. Because most of the time when we're in the field, we're horseback riding, and that's my favorite part. I can't stop smiling like an idiot as I watch my favorite faces in the world bounce around on a screen. We talk about the ranch, the fields we treasure, the river, the smell of mosquito spray and sweaty saddles. Remarkably, most of our presiding memories take place in the ancient barn, which stands as a living relic of a hundred years of hard work and tomfoolery. It's a giant, stately building, silhouetted against the setting Colorado sun, tattered like the cover of a well-loved book. Inside, decaying auto parts litter the floor, and Swallow's cursive arcs decorate the rafters. My grandmother and her brothers milked cows in the stables and hung a rope swing from the hayloft. My dad and his siblings and cousins threw hay down the chutes to feed the horses and tacked a basketball hoop on the wall so they could scrimmage in the winter. The Carpenter family sold the ranch to the Nature Conservancy just a few years after I was born sparing the children in my generation the hard ranch labor earlier generations had endured. For us, the barn was only fun. It became, from the time we could walk, the most bountiful playground we could have ever imagined. My cousins and I had only to throw open the heavy swinging doors and inhale the sweet scent of alfalfa, leather saddles, and manure to know that here, adventure knew no limits. In my memory, the tradition of barn hide-and-seek has no beginning. I do not remember the first time we played. It just always happened. An unspoken tenant of reunion law. When the sun began tracing its arc across the western sky, knees started twitching under the dinner table. Kids exchanged fervent glances and dodged eye contact with parents, who still held fast to the absurd notion that bedtime would be observed. One by one, we stole upstairs to change into black clothing. We poked at our food and waited anxiously for the adults to finish eating and start washing dishes, which provided ample distraction for a getaway. Then, bam, out the door, into the night. We slipped like shadows along the gravel path and congregated at the dark mouth of the barn, whispering excitedly as if no one knew where we were or what we were up to. The swarm of cousins rock-paper-scissored for it. Then we entered the cool cave, tightened our shoelaces, and sealed the giant wooden doors behind us. Darkness engulfed the scene like ink. We held our hands an inch from our faces and couldn't see them. That's how we knew it was time to play. One. 
two, three. My little brother began counting. The rest of us scattered. Dozens of feet darted across the filthy floorboards by feel, dodging rusted equipment and piles of old canoe paddles in the dark. Everyone moved quickly, stealthily. Twelve. Thirteen. Fourteen. The dark hung like fog, impenetrable. Our eyes strained for any kind of definition, any tiny reflection of light, but they may as well have been closed. Thirty-five. Thirty-six. Thirty-seven. We pulled ourselves up the narrow stairs by the handrail, avoided the loose floorboard, and pattered across the creaky second floor. A century of dust and mouse droppings muffled our footsteps as we ran. Some climbed up, hanging from wooden ladders or chimneying up corners to hoist themselves into an uncomfortable squat. Others stayed horizontal, sliding behind a toolbox, a hay bale, or under an old canoe. My cousin Kyle and I chose to descend. We found the hay chute in the northwest corner of the building, wedged our fingers into the cracks between the boards, and let our feet drop into the dark abyss. I was small enough that I had to let my body fully extend, dangling by my fingers until my shoes made contact with the top rung of the fence in the stables below. I slid over wordlessly and let Kyle follow until I could feel the warmth of his breath join me on the fence. We dropped together into the feeding trough and lay on our backs, our breathing shallow. Bats swooped above us, and I felt a flutter of air on my cheek as one passed. The trough barely fit us both. In the darkness, the tops of our heads bumped against each other. We lay there, in silent solidarity, not daring to utter a word to each other. Ninety-nine, one hundred, ready or not, here I come. Ready or not. If ever there were three words to get our hearts pumping, those were the ones. A few kids uttered a frantic shh, and then an excited hush settled over the barn. Hide-and-seek in the barn contained all the best elements of adventure. Exploration, competition, danger, sheer terror, as my cousin Francis described it later, crouching in a dark corner, waiting to be found. Remarkably, the members of my family sustained few serious injuries over the course of our hide-and-seek career, which is hard to believe if you saw all the rusted crap piled up along the walls or the giant holes in the second floor. I attribute our clean record to the hours each day we would spend training for our nighttime activities, practicing our six-foot leaps off the hayloft and hasty solos up the chutes. We knew that winning a game of hide-and-seek required incredible physical awareness, an awakening of all the senses to soundlessly navigate through a minefield of ranch clutter in the dark. It sounds ridiculous, but I really believe it was the barn, above any other activity in my life, that taught me the power of my own body. I learned my arms could pull me up a wall by a tiny ledge, that my feet could run without tripping over uneven terrain, that my entire being could melt into its surroundings if I let it become invisible, lose all sense of where the border of my skin ended and where the sweet air of the barn began. After 15 minutes head-to-head -head in the feeding trough, Kyle and I heard my brother Tilden shuffling through the dust in the stables. He hadn't found anyone yet, and our dedication to the lonely game of hiding wavered. I heard my Aunt Carol whistle a refrain from West Side Story through the rafters. 
I whistled back. Someone in a stall along the southern wall mooed. Someone else farted. Kyle and I exploded in giggles, and Tilden ran toward us, caught my shoulder, and bellowed a triumphant, Aha! And really, it was a relief to be found. We'd laugh, shake off the dust, and saunter back to the entrance of the barn to reunite with our cousins. There, we'd relish a few minutes of their company before the counting started over and we plunged into the darkness again. What is hide-and-seek at the end of the day? Just a giant game of pretend. Wedged in some crack by ourselves, we tried on isolation, tested out fear, pretended we were alone in the darkness, unable to find or touch any of the people we loved most. It was a thrill to simulate loneliness, because I think it reminded us every night that we weren't alone. It made us appreciate, after hours groping around in the darkness, the power of light, the simple comfort of seeing the face of a person we loved. We'd play this game over and over, summer after summer, pretending we were in danger, pretending we were alone. Because at the end of the night, we knew our pounding hearts and our laughter would give us away, and our brother would come creaking along the dusty floorboards to reach out, touch us, and declare, I found you. And just like that, the loneliness would end. All right, love you all. Bye. Good talking, everybody. I love you all. Our time has run out. People have to go. My mouse hovers over the red leave meeting button, and I scan over my family's faces one last time before I click to exit Zoom. My room swims back into view. The light's too bright. My face is sweating. My throat feels tight and tears well up in my eyes, and I close them, clinging to the fading images of the barn before they disappear. This time, it all feels too real. It's been quiet for too long, and when I whistle West Side Story, no one whistles back. I just want the game to end. I want to be found. I want to brush the dust off my shoulders, walk to the front of the barn, and find my family there. But maybe we were practicing for this, in some way, all those years playing in the barn. Maybe we were reassuring ourselves that the people we love don't just go away when the lights turn off. That it might take a while, but as we're hunkered down waiting, the rest of the fam is hunkered down too, listening to their breathing, melting into the space. And though we might not be able to see any shapes in the dark, we know, as we've always known, that we're not alone. I'm Cordelia Zars, and this is my short. Thank you, Cordelia, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. 
If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Kai Engel, John Barry, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, edited by Becca Cahal, artwork and graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.